ladies and gentlemen, good evening to you. What a wonderful meal, what a wonderful gathering to be here in the foyer of the National Library, this temple to learning, to literature. My name's Genevieve Jacobs, a very warm welcome from me too. And I'd also like to acknowledge that we meet on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, to acknowledge their ongoing custodianship of this place and to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, emerging, and to any other elders who may be present. Tonight, the story of an Australian great and someone who was also great at crafting his own legend. Frank Hurley was a pioneering Australian photographer, an adventurer, an explorer, a man who loved a good story and who knowed how to shape one, and knew how to shape one. He photographed Antarctica, the fields of Flanders, the New Guinea Highlands, he made blockbuster films, he shot two world wars, yet who was he really? What motivated him? You can see one of the significant bodies of his work here at the library in pilgrimage, Hurley in the Middle East, and we'll talk more specifically about those images a little later. But with me tonight, two guests to help us shed light on the puzzles of a photographer and a showman. Alastair McGregor wrote Frank Hurley, A Photographer's Life, and filmmaker Simon Nash made the documentary Frank Hurley, The Man Who Made History. Welcome to you both. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Genevieve. Thank you. Alistair, what we know of Hurley's early life is sketchy, but by his own account, adventurous with a capital A, and, and as you say in the book, something almost out of Dickens, I'm wondering whether his departure from formal education at the age of 13, in a way, sets a pattern for his life. Oh, it does, without a doubt, mm. yes. He ran away from the classroom after apparently some, uh, a prank, you might say. Um, a, a prank gone wrong, he, he claims that he was um, wrongly accused of this and uh, in his haste he... Caustic soda on the teacher's seat. Apparently, yes. <laughs> and uh, he, <laughs> he is said to have thrown an inkwell at the gentleman, which wouldn't have gone down. <laughs> well, he bolted down to the, uh, the railway goods yards at uh, Darling Harbour in Sydney, supposedly hid away in a, in a goods wagon. Next morning, he finds himself in Mount Victoria in the middle of winter. <laughs> and uh, the station master discovers him and he's, he's given a choice to be sent back to school and his father's... Uh, uh, displeasure, which you could imagine would have been quite severe, or apparently there's this r young railway navvy just itching to have a go at this, this other fellow, and of course Frank was something of a playground pugilist, and so they, they had the fight, and guess who won? <laughs> You're right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Frank's given the chance he can go wherever he likes. So he gets back on the train and he ends up not far away in, in uh, Lithgow. And Lithgow, it seems, is you know, where it all starts because several things coalesce there. He gets a job quickly as a sort of errand boy around the... It was an iron, the steelworks, ironworks, it was one of the early you know, industrial sites in Australia, coal mining nearby. Um, so he gets a job, he finds some lodging, um, but he supposedly befriends, and I keep saying supposedly because mm. this, is, this is the myth, this is the man making, making up his own story. He gets, um, he, he gets to know one of the... Um, 
seeing him in, in, the, in the ironworks, who's a keen photographer. And he goes out on weekend excursions with his big plate camera, his heavy timber tripod. And, of course, Lithgow is near the glories of the Blue Mountains, the big sandstone cliffs and abutments and the forest and the whole thing. So there's nature. And, and Frank is instantly switched on to photography and nature. And um, <coughs> he stays there for one, two years. We don't quite know how long. He goes back to Sydney. His father forgives him. His father finances him into a photographic business eventually to the tune of 500 pounds, which is, is an astounding amount of money in those days. So, you know, is it true? Is it not? Well, it's the Hurley myth right well, from the start. His father, in fact, seems to have been quite understanding because on receiving the message that young Frank is fine and in employment, his father says, oh, yeah, terrific. That's right. Get on with it. Yes. That's all all right. That's yes, you are only okay. 13 if you run yeah. away to Lithgow, but that's, that's quite OK. He's, uh, he's learning on the job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he seems to have a gift of sensing the mood of the times and a way of putting himself right at the forefront of those changes. I mean, he certainly did as a young photographer. He made incredibly rapid progress. Mm. He's only in his 20s when he's being listed alongside the likes of Kazno as a, a prominent practitioner. Why photography? What, what appealed to him about photography and, and the, the time, this pre-war period, the, the changes that were taking place? Well, it was a very significant time in the development of pho photography. Uh, Charles Eastman, who founded Kodak, of course, developed dry plate photography, which meant that photography came out of the, the, the highly technical, skilled um, process of virtually taking your darkroom with you on the back of a wagon or whatever, and these difficult to manage ephemeral processes in, into a way where you could expose your plates virtually at your leisure, you carefully stored them away in light-proof conditions, then take them back to the dark room and develop them. So, um, and it meant that photographers were mo more mobile, they weren't confined to the studio, and so it was this great surge of interest in um, photography, not 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 only from its technical standpoint, and and for professionals, but amateurs come into the uh, to the mix. And so, Frank is also involved with amateur societies. He joins the Ashfield District Camera Club, and they're like the sort of computer nerds of, uh, <laughs> of the late 19th, early 20th century. All these eager, eager young lads going out on the weekends with their tripods and and, and cameras and swapping ideas and you know, darkroom techniques and, and all this sort of thing. And Frank starts writing at an early age for the photographic press. And so, and then, of course, as I said, his father finances him into um, a, a studio. Um, 500 pounds, supposedly, that produces postcards. And postcards were, there was a great apparently worldwide for postcards. Now, they're not, they weren't just things that you sent when you were on holidays and wish you were here, sort of, sort of glib greetings, but they... They were the SMS of their age. Exactly, <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, Simon, what, what 
what's the quality of that work? Because we do have a number of these very early Hurley images. Hmm. Some of those have survived. What are the qualities of the work? What does he bring to it? I mean, the, the images are often rushing trains. There's, there's sort of high Those early days, I mean, you, you see an artist working his way through the, first the technology uh, and, then, and then actually claiming his own eye. You do see that. I mean, it's it's. I mean, there's definitely influences from the great Harold Kaysno and others that, uh, who were the prominent Austra early Australian photographers. You can see that there, and that pictorialism that you'll see in the exhibition in the Middle East, they're postcards basically. Mm. Um, so you see him working his way through, but he does develop his own eye pretty quickly. I mean, I was interested, of course, um, in also seeing his early film work. Uh, and, and that's quite remarkable because the story goes that I think Alistair will know better than me is that um, before going off on the first Mawson expedition to the Antarctic where he basically blags his way on to the, to the job by confronting Mawson on a train and not letting go until he gets a yes, um, uh, poor Mawson. The, uh, but he got the film camera that he took to the Antarctic, I think, what, weeks, maybe days mm. before they left, and he had never handled one oh, before. The mm. story goes that he had some quick instruction filming office workers on their lunch break in, <laughs> you know, one Before of he's going to the most remote place <laughs> on earth. But, but he's, got, he's got technical skill and facility. Oh, yeah, and very handy, yes. with, good with his hands. Yeah, there was no knows, doubt. He, he was a good man doing. in a crisis. I mean, that, mm. that comes mm. through again and again, yes. certainly on the Shackleton expedition, where yeah. people actually, you know, Shackleton was concerned about Hurley being a potential That's rival right. if there was a, mm. a, a rift. And Shackleton very wisely put him in his own tent, yeah. saying, keep him close. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because Hurley could fix things. He yeah. could do things with his hands. Yeah. He was a very useful bloke to have. And, yeah. and Simon, he loves, and we see this in the early photographs, mm. he loves a whiff of danger. You know, the, the, the photographs that you, you sort of see of onrushing steam yes, trains real and or like. imagined. Yeah, yes. Or created. Yes. Mm. Um, no, he, he was definitely crafting his, um, his life as an adventurer. Uh, and that was his business. He was, I often, uh, he, has, he had a few colleagues, one of them another l much less known Australian photographer and, and adventurer, Hubert Wilkins, who I've written about, um, who got a message at one stage, Wilkins was much less a showman than Hurley, but, but was told, Wilkins, we're in the adventure business. We're in the, mm. wish, you know, you, you've got to behave like that with the PR man and, the, and, and Hurley, was a one-man operation. He was a corporation, really. I mean, he was he was technically proficient. He was definitely brave. He was very kind of canny, I think, mm. with opportunities. He was pretty good with money, um, or chased Shackleton endlessly for unpaid bills mm. and things. He wasn't going <laughs> to let him get away with it. Chased him to the, the front line, you know, World War One. You know, like a there's this, there's a story up. in yeah. that. That's for um, sure. So. He was, he was adept and, and, you know, I often drive past, most days I drive to work past the, uh, you know, the Forest Lodge Primary School mm. and think, mm. that guy left there yeah. as a 12-year-old and the things he did and the places he went at the time he did it, when most people barely went beyond their hometown, mm. um, was pretty amazing. Well, and, and Alistair, well, back, that, that back to That comes back to, you know, I think you were, you were trying to uh, get a feel for, well, why photography? And that's quite simple in a way. In fact, he, 
he writes about this and he said in a rather florid way, which he was want, want to do at times, that photography opened the golden door of adventure mm. for him. And there are these wonderful stories, for instance, in the early days, for instance, Shackleton, coming back from Antarctica, his ship, the Nimrod, comes into Sydney Harbour. And this, he's now in the postcard business. And, it, you know, Shackleton's famous. He's just almost reached the South Pole. Um, it makes the press. And so Frank gets down there. He takes photographs of the Nimrod. He takes a portrait photograph of Shackleton. He takes a photograph of one of the sledge dogs that had come back with them. And also Harry Houdini comes to <laughs> Sydney. <laughs> Harry Houdini comes to Sydney and is fated and he made an early flight, I think, at Digger's Rest in Victoria. You know, he's world famous, and this man is making a business out of adventure. Mm. Guess what? The Ashfield District Camera Club <laughs> hosted Houdini to lunch. <laughs> which, I was, could which was Frank setting himself up. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I've I got a name, I can yeah. call, there's someone who will know yeah. me. And the camera was his ticket to yeah, that. Exactly. And, and which is presumably a reason for joining the Mawson Antarctic Expedition. Yeah. And look, look, reading your book, Alastair, it occurred to me that I'd never really placed Mawson before in that post-Federation political ferment of energy and ideas and adventure and vision. Yeah. I mean, this was a really exciting place <coughs> to when be. When Australia had it, Genevieve, I yes, might add. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It was an extraordinary time, mm, uh, post-Federation and pre-First yes. World War, well, the last, where we believed yeah. we could do anything. Well, the last conversation I had here in the National Library was, in fact, about the women's suffrage movement with Claire Wright absolutely. on exactly that. Another our, aspect of Our it, leadership yes. there. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's drawn on the greatest adventure of all to go to one of the toughest places yeah. on earth. Um, and, and that's sort of thrilling and boys' own adventure stuff with Mawson. But Alistair, when Hurley heads off with Shackleton, of course it does in fact turn into one of the great Australian feats of all time. And the survival of the icebound crew of the Endurance, mm. Hurley's extraordinary photos of the ship just tilting in this icy vice as the, as the ice crushes yes, and, and yes. bursts it. And then Shackleton's remarkable rescue mission on the James Caird, while the others with Hurley huddle on Elephant Island. This is an extraordinary thing to survive, much less A, to photograph, mm. and B, to bring the photos back. Well, it's, it's, it's a sort of um, episode in history that that's, that's created its own life. It, it lives today, and I live it every year. I'm fortunate enough to go back to Antarctica. And I keep thinking, you know, if there was one missed step, I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't have written that mm. book. It, it's all so tenuous. The survival of these people in this situation is just, just extraordinary. And Hurley, one of the, you know, he's renowned for his bravery, yes, but. There's also this sort of protracted and long, drawn-out um, tension in these situations where you've got to be brave every day. You've got to keep going. And he's keeping going, documenting this. He's photographing it um, for part of the time he's filming it. And he's doing this in a very deliberate and a very calculating way because he realises that if they get 
out of this. There is a, this golden commercial opportunity that they, they are going to clean up. And Alistair, and I'd like to, I mean, I contend in the film I made, and you may well disagree, but I think I, I argue if we didn't have the photos and the films of the Shackleton expedition, it would be just a footnote in the Absolutely. other expeditions, totally the many failed you. expeditions. That's my thesis entirely. Yeah, mm. I think you would agree. Is uh, that it, was, it is the artefacts that make it history. And, yes. and just on that, Simon, mm. there is a photograph of the James Caird setting to sea from <laughs> Elephant Island to go oh, for yes. this remarkable, extraordinary trip to South Georgia to save everyone. There's a brilliant sunrise <laughs> behind it, and it's a great image. But Hurley always touched has... Touched by the gods. Yeah, touched by something more than the gods, in fact. <laughs> yeah. So Hurley's always got that eye to the story and he's got this fundamental instinct with two consequences. One is that it is brilliant storytelling, so compelling, but the other is that you're never absolutely sure what the raw, unadorned truth might have been because... Oh, we know what the truth was. It wasn't that. Yes, in it fact, wasn't that, pic that. That picture of the arrival is actually the picture of the departure. Yes. yes. That he's just swapped that, and used. That, yeah. That's one of the no most notorious crimes, in a sense, in photography that, that Frank was involved in. That when they got back to England, and you must remember this is 1917, it's that, it's, you know, it's that the world is tearing itself apart. And this expedition, these, this small group of men who come out of the wilderness, they, they have great propaganda value. Mm. So he's under great pressure to produce images for the press. And by this stage, you know, the photographic illustrations and the papers were quite sophisticated, so they could tell a story. So for some reason, and I won't go into all the, all the, you know, the, the, the whole background of this image, but it's, it's, he got hold of his original negative. Now, this is not a glass plate. This is nitrate film. And there are two boats in the, in the original. There's the James Caird, which had to make this great um, ocean passage over nearly 800 nautical miles. Basically and a rowboat. Yeah, mm. basically a mm. rowboat, that's right. And it's, it's heavily laden, so they, they pulled it out past the surf so that they could load it with ballast and water and food and everything for this, this arduous trip ahead. So it was empty. They took it out past mm. the surf and then they loaded. So they used one of the other boats to uh, relay um, all the supplies out because Frank took a photograph of that. And by this stage, all he's left with is three rolls of film and a folding pocket camera. So it's basically an amateur camera. All his large plate cameras have been destroyed they, because they're too heavy. They, they mm. couldn't, couldn't carry them. So he has to be very careful about what he photographs. But this is the penultimate, you know, this is the, the, the critical moment in this story. And all these poor forlorn chaps are, are on the beach waving goodbye but there are two boats in the store in the in the mm. correct image of course that would be very confusing in the in the um, in the telling of the story so what he does is he gets a, a scalpel or whatever and he just he just hacks away at the the original negative he removes the second boat so it looks as though this little boat is rowing to Alone the shore when the when they are eventually rescued <laughs> Now, why he did that, nobody can explain because he could have made a copy negative and, mm. and so on. And this priceless original 
negative has been vandalised by the photographer. But, but He's right. <laughs> but but um, Simon, it, it takes us really early into the piece to this interesting idea about what photography is and what its role is. Mm. And there's this long-standing sort of presumption that part of the value of photography is that it tells the unvarnished truth. Now, that's not true. It's never been true. Mm. A camera's a tool just like a, a paintbrush or a, a chisel. He, he said almost those exact words. Mm. Yeah. But Hurley uses his darkroom skills, he uses his fertile imagination. In a sense, right at this very early juncture, he's creating a photographic performance as much as simply recording a moment in time. Yeah. Um, Alistair and I have both been lucky enough to see one remarkable little bit of Hurley memorabilia that very few people will ever get to see because it's in a little tiny dark room in Mawson's hut in Antarctica. And they're written, it's about the size of a telephone booth, if anyone remembers what that is. And inside that, on his little plate table, he has written in pencil, scraped into the wood, near enough is never good enough. Mm. To remind, it's a reminder to him about the need... He's not talking about effort alone. He's not just talking about that. He's talking about effect. And he's, he's driven, and that's, that's pre-Shackleton, that's 1911 or 12, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Alistair, yeah. No, 12. Yeah, so he's, he's there saying, I have one opportunity only to tell the story I have to tell, and I, and I will never compromise. And I've seen plates there, they're actually in the NLA collection. Where you can see he's written, reject, on the plate. And so he, he will never be tempted to use it. He's sitting there in the Shackleton expedition. He's got to get rid of two-thirds of his collection of these glass plates. And he's sitting there as the endurance has been crushed in the ice and Mawson said, we're, uh, Shackleton said, we're off, we've got to go. Frank, you've got to dump, you've got to, you've got, you can't, we can't bring them all. And he's sitting there and he's smashing two-thirds of these glass plates. And yet, even if he's out, he writes about wanting to go back and just take a few more. <laughs> I just want to take a few more. It's the perfect. He's on the quest for the perfect in his mind, in his vision. Yeah, well, his colleagues are saying, Frank, you'd rather take bloody glass than food. Mm. <laughs> what are you thinking? Mm. And he's thinking very clearly because we don't exist as history or as a story mm. without these glass plates. Which takes us nicely, Alistair, to the First World War. So we've got a brilliantly fearless young photographer. He's been to Antarctica twice. He's still only in his late 20s, actually, mm. at this juncture. And... He ends up on the Western Front with Charles Bean. So this fervent historian and record taker who's committed body and soul to being the nation's eyewitness to the Great War. Now, Hurley does have an offsider, there's Wilkins, whom Simon mentioned a moment ago. But what happens when Frank Hurley, with this showmanship, this zeal, this idea of the performance of photography, meets Bean with all his meticulous regard for the truth of our nation's story. It's very puzzling in some ways because um, Hurley writes in his diary that I've been um, employed, if you like, he doesn't use that word, but he, he's, he's been engaged uh, to take care of propaganda. Or it might even have been Bean who actually said that Hurley's the propaganda man, Wilkins is the record photographer. Yep. Um, and so Hurley takes that literally. He's, he has to stir, not the troops, but the, the public to support the war effort. And what they're aiming at specifically is a major exhibition that was to be staged in 1918 in London of war, uh, 
war artists and photographers. And so there were people like George Lambert and so on, um, Will Dyson, and, and they're, they're recording the Australians at war uh, because the Canadians are doing it. And, and, and the British weren't. And the British weren't. Um, Lord Beaverbrook put his own fortune into the Canadian record. And there's, there's this wonderful story that uh, Bean get I'm getting off the track a little bit here, but it's worth telling that uh, uh, Hurley was nearly poached by Beaverbrook. And, of course, this, <laughs> this um, Bean just freaks out at <laughs> this possibility that, that it's almost as if uh, you know Hurley's going over to the enemy and so the two the two never get on um, and Hurley wants to make these composite images of of the uh, of the battlefield because he feels that as a photographer can you imagine standing out there in the battlefield there are shells bursting around you the, there's there's bullets flying past your head you're standing there under a dark cloth with a big plate camera. I, the, the bravery involved in doing that is just amazing. But you're taking well, the silliness. A, <laughs> the silliness. You're taking one single image. Mm. So Hurley thinks, how can I show the the breadth of modern warfare, from the trenches to the aerial bombardments, the dogfights, the explosions? Uh, it was warfare on a vast scale. So he thought, well, I'll combine negatives, I'll take some photographs of planes and, and the troops hopping out of the trenches and, and so on and combine them. And he made the, for the exhibition that eventually was staged in London, they're basically tableau, these huge... Um, pictures, I, I can't remember the exact they're dimensions. They're, they're not that much smaller than that. Sort of that work up, up, to yeah. the, up to the top of the curtain here. Um, and and the, there's an image in my book which gives a graphic example of scale because it's against a brick wall and you can see all the brick courses you know, and there's a ladder beside it. They're huge. Um, and to our modern eye, they look a bit crude, but they must have made a, a tremendous impact. Well, to Bean, these were anathema. Mm. He thought that they were a lie, basically. Mm. And Bean made sure they, never, they were never seen in Australia. And, and, this is, and this is interesting, Simon, because Hurley fully believes it's his patriotic duty to create as stirring and powerful and evocative a representation of war as possible. It's a really good question about him whether those images were more an accurate representation mm. of the war than the simple, the simple captured moment that his colleague Wilkins was instructed to take. Well, and, he's, he's and not embellishing just for the hell of it. He's doing it because no, no, he believes no. in what he needs I to present. I think Bean think, probably felt he crossed the line, though, mm. in the em embellishment. I mean, this, I mean you, could, you can go through the NLA collection and you can see the composite, the, the individual frames, and you can, you can reconstruct what he put together. And they often come from seven or eight different images, including one famous one of, of troops going over the the trenches, shot from a little high, um, that was actually shot in an exercise in Britain, in a training <laughs> exercise. And he's added that, and for Bean, that was, that was too far. That was, a, that was a step too far. I'm sure they would have found a compromise. It's, it's a really interesting argument, and it comes back to something that I always found interesting about Hurley, was that it's a very modern argument. Mm. It's a very mm. contemporary one. Mm. It hasn't gone out of style, this idea of what's real and what's not, and what's fake and what isn't. Mm. Um, Hurley, was, Hurley kind of invented mm. that question because he was really the first, I think, 
possibly on a global scale, that was actually in this midst of these great events in history and was creating a story around them from his remarkable darkroom skills. Mm. We should not forget that he was an excellent technician. I mean, he was, you know, he was truly good at his craft. Mm. And I have sat with, you know, specialists in photography who've, who've looked, you know, worked with glass plates. They have difficulty today using the same techniques that Hurley did, not digitised, to create what he created so, so comprehensively and so effectively. And, and one of the beauties, of course, and the NLA have, have, have represented this before and talked about it before and shown it, is that I think of the 10,000 uh, images that in the collection here, uh, I'd say about 1,000 of them are clouds that he's collected at various <laughs> right. times to add the great, yes. the great you know, yes. magnificent moment of the, s of the sun yes. coming through the cloud at the appropriate moment. I mean, so that, there are so many clouds. Yeah, that, that's a good one. I'll be able to use that <laughs> yeah, later. I'll just, yeah. I'll just save that one. That's and right. and he is, he's a really fast mover because after the war, there's, there's a Mrs Hurley, there are twins, which doesn't stop him from setting out in very short order the Papua New Guinea Highlands. Mm. <laughs> and some of his lesser-known work, but it turns out quite deeply historically significant, uh, because it gives us a remarkable insight into the innermost secrets of an ancient culture. Now, Alistair, just this goes to the idea of the showman, but it also goes to the idea of sort of anything for the perfect picture. His methods in obtaining these images, the images themselves have turned out to be deeply significant. The way he got them could frankly be described, even at the time, as pretty unscrupulous. What happened? Pretty slipshod, that's yeah. for sure. Slippery, someone said yes. earlier. Excellent. And yes. you both nodded in agreement. No, that's, that's true. Um, he actually made two expeditions to Papua and uh, the Torres Strait. Uh, the first one was a commission from the Anglican Board of Mission. Uh, based in Sydney. Who and did not know what they were getting into. No. <laughs> they wanted a photographer and filmmaker to go and record their activities in converting the local populace to Christianity and, and all very pious and so on, which Frank did to an extent, but he also saw this great opportunity to, to, uh, to gather his own material. But in that first expedition, he felt there was a little bit tame, although, you know, he did collect some valuable material, but he wanted to go back. And by this stage, um, we didn't get into his first foray into the Middle East where he started to fly. Um, he flew with uh, Ross Smith, the mm. great um, uh, soldier and aviator, uh, and that gave him another perspective. And, of course, when you think about flying in a place like, um, like New Guinea, I mean, he was flying in... Uh, well, he took two aircraft and really only used one, but these very flimsy flying boats, and they flew across the Gulf of Papua in one of these, and he actually said that this was the, the, the most terrifying um, episode of his entire life, and this is after all his experiences on the Western Front in Antarctica. So, so you can imagine what that was like, but, but getting to your point about the... Um, his, his purpose there on this second expedition was to collect material for ba basically uh, documentary performances. And in, in those days, it wasn't a film with sound and, and, and so on that we're used to. It was a, almost a choreographed performance where you would have live music, say, you would have a collection of artefacts. And, and this is... W he, he w had an eye for 
for the most sensational things, the, the clubs, Lots the, of the shrunken, skulls. shrunken heads, mm. the, the skulls, the, all the gruesome material, which, of course, taken out of context, it, it makes no sense to us who have greater sensibilities. But back then, you know, it was headhunters of, of, of Papua. Mm. Um, and the more sensational, the better. Well, his collection methods were sh slipshod at best. It was a few sticks of tobacco, some, uh, a, a bolt of red calico cloth, and we'll take that, thank you very much. And, of course, they even got to the point of taking sacred objects mm. out of longhouses, which, we, and, and these, these men, these uninitiated men, were never supposed to be in these places. I mean, it, it completely freaked out the, the villages where he worked. And Simon should say more about this because he's actually been back to these villages yeah, I mean, he's decades later. It's, 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 a, it's a tragedy and it's a triumph and it's very frank. It's, it's never simple. Mm. It's mm. never simple. I, I went back there. We showed that film that Frank did on his infamous trip in a very remote village in, um, in the Gulf mm. where he had been, where he had taken artefacts from that village, which had, in Frank's film, been these magnificent long houses that would house up to, you know, 150 people would sleep there. I mean, gigantic, you know, the size of this room these long houses, even longer, and they're gone. There's just the logs, the rotting logs, in, and we, and the, you know, Christian missionaries have been through, and, and things have changed, and it's corrugated iron and radio. There's no roads. It's still, still quite a journey to get there. Um, and we showed that film in that village outside on a big white sheet and projected it, and they loved to see it. Mm. They loved to see it. So for all of his misdemeanours, for all of his insensitivities, and he was pretty much a product of his time, and he was a very Edwardian, even, <laughs> even long after Edward was gone. Um, he, he captured something remarkable that will live through time. Hmm. Hmm. And it has value to those people, it has value to us, but it came at a cost. Well, well, it also essentially advanced his own commercial interests. Oh, yeah. And, it did, no and, doubt and as about usual, that. Frank did bloody well out of it. That's yeah. right. I mean, he, he showed that film around the world. He <laughs> sold out Carnegie Hall, the Albert Hall. Um, you know, he was on the verge of going Hollywood, actually, mm. as yeah. Alistair said. There was mm. just, he just probably missed the boat a little yeah. bit in terms of things had moved on. The fashion had changed. Well, but I mean, so. even, I just found it fascinating reading about this expedition that there were people on the expedition who were saying, look, hang on, Frank, you can't ransack people's oh, longhouses. Oh, it was a scandal, political scandal yes. back, in, back in Australia. Yeah. Um, that, you know, people wanted to shut him down and bring it back. And he, he was... He was pretty well connected, though, Frank, wasn't he? He got off by the skin of his teeth he, on that one. Others he, suffered badly, including his so-called chief scientist on that expedition who would subsequently commit suicide, mm. sadly. Mm. Um, uh, Frank just brushed it off, really. He did. Well, well, he also... He was a great manipulator of the press and he was sent, yeah. sending back yeah. reports he always had to, his story to, to the Sydney Sun newspaper. Mm. Um, well, he blamed invidious bu bureaucracy oh, and the sort of, of the course, dull hand you know, of, of heartless he, regulators. He spun it, he spun it <laughs> really he, he well. Spun it as, he spun it brilliantly. Uh, as a writer, uh, generally, if he's describing the, the scene he's in, he's a much better photographer. But, but when the, the invective starts, 
he's brilliant. <laughs> and <laughs> as a biographer, I, I always cherish this moment when I came across Frank in high dudgeon. <laughs> he's, he's, he's absolutely marvellous. He, he, played, he played the victim very yeah, well. I he mean, did. Th this oh, yeah. does lead to a, an interlude, a number of films, The Hound of the Deep, a flaming love story of the tropics. His attempt jungle. to make a narrative film, yes. yeah, he, yeah. He, he, he jumped the shark, <laughs> as they say. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the Jungle Woman, based the jungle on the premise. Jungle Woman. Oh, and yeah. here so I quote, a dusky chieftain's daughter and a wounded young prospector flung together in the Papuan wilds where no man-made law could reach out and say, thou shalt not. <laughs> well, uh, really? Well, Lay well, it on with a shovel, Frank. The, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. the dusky chieftain's daughter was a woman by the name of Grace Severi, I think is mm. the way you pronounce Black -faced it. Black-faced up from Sydney, Who yeah. was uh, a Sydney actress. <laughs> um, <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> who had the dark makeup put on every day. It's great behind the scenes of that film, actually, <laughs> them coming off the boat at Moresby and looking like... What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> what on earth are we doing stunned here? These actors turned well, uh, up and, and, gone, and oh. the other thing about that is because uh, Frank had really, um, you know, soiled his <laughs> nest, if you like, um, that the Australian colonial authorities forbade him to mm. make the film in Papua. He went to the other side of the border to Dutch New Guinea <laughs> to make this film, and for these. These, uh, as Simon says, these these actors who come from England and they're like, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> Don't worry, we're going to New Guinea, not Papua. Forget <laughs> about it. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's move past Dusky Maidens. And, and there's even a clergyman in there somewhere who's seduced and all kinds of things go on. But but let's... Racy. Very racy. Well, but they call these things, and seriously, they, they're described as sex films. Yes, that's right. And the censors were quite active with Frank's oh, yes. work. You yes. know, there, was, there yeah. were glimpses of flesh. It was a brief moment in his career. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yes. To be fair. But yeah. look, let, let's... let's get to the Second World War, because this is the material that we see in the exhibition here, and it connects to all the experiences of the First World War and to Hurley's instincts and his practice, and maybe perhaps to a sort of a turning point in his life as well. Somewhat unexpectedly in 1940, he's put in charge of the Australian photographic output in the Middle East. Now, this is not the First World War. Things have changed. Uh, the understanding of photography and its role has changed. He's in contact, Alastair, with the likes of Damien Perra. Th there's a sense that this is a different era and perhaps different values mm. pertain to how one represents war. The relationship with Perra and George Silk, a young... Uh, New a generation younger. New Zealand yeah. photographer, uh, Silk and Perra are roughly the same age. Uh, as you say, they are a different generation. They're, they're a new breed. They are the... the photojournalists mm. so they're, they're not interested in in you know perfect exposures perfect composition they want to see the fear in a soldier's face they want to see the fatigue the the boredom the the gritty stuff of war so so Pera would put himself between the enemy and the advancing troops and of course he paid eventually with his with his life in the in the Pacific Won an Academy Award, by the way, Australia's exactly. first. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. mm. um, and they didn't mind if their, their movie film was scratched because dust would get into the camera and the whole thing. You know. But, but to, to Frank, that, that was, well, that was ruined. You know, you'd have to toss that out. He was still looking at the, the Middle East as this grand vista, the, the, almost the biblical scene 
Um, and, and they were trying to record fast-moving engagements, tank battles, um, where the enemy would disappear in a cloud of dust as they advanced. And, and he's still using the, 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 the heavy um, cine cameras and, and still cameras and so on. Um, and he's very much yesterday's man. But he has an interesting relationship with both Silk and Pera. He's, he's, he's almost like this father figure and he's fussing about them and he's worried about their safety and trying to advise them that, you know, don't take too many risks, it's not worth it and so on and, and don't fall for the government's spin on all this, they'll only take advantage of you. He's very concerned about their, their welfare. So it's a, it's a very interesting relationship. Still working like a demon too. Oh, yes. Where he writes uh, working on a New Year's Eve, yeah, I remember, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. You but know, but just Simon, the interesting thing about that output, and we see that because pilgrimage is all about Hurley in the Middle East. He returns, as Alastair said, to a place that he'd fallen passionately in love with in the First World War. But the focus turns to local people, to places where people lived to the lives of people like the, the yeah, it's interesting just looking the at just looking there he didn't often he didn't take many portraits throughout mm. his career it's the one place where he did i mean he did in new guinea but that was because they were exotic and he was not really interested in the people he was mm. there meeting um but in the middle east he did take some beautiful portraits um and you'll see them a few of them represented nicely in the exhibition um yeah he um i think he i don't think he was a religious man but he felt he felt being in the biblical lands moved him. He related to that. He certainly stayed on. I mean, he volunteered to stay after the war. He stayed six years, um, leaving the wife with... Patient Mrs Hurley and a large brood of children Ad Adele, were left in Adele the eastern Adele suburbs. Back in, back in uh, the northern beaches <laughs> northern in, in Coleroy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, she never forgave him. Um, uh, and... He, yeah, he, he volunteered to stay on. I think he didn't want to kind of face the mortality that he was sort of out of style. Mm. And so he'd just do one more gig, mm. you know. But they're, they're, <laughs> they're very, many of them are quite gentle photographs. And I, I know they that, are. that this is one of the things that, um, that curating this exhibition has been about, is to say, here are, here are sort of quite intimate portraits of people mm. seen in, in the course of their everyday lives doing things that are... Simple, humble, quite straightforward. They have a great dignity about Digni them. Enormous dignity. Nicely, enormous nicely put, Alistair. Yes, yeah. the, um, they're still very much Hurley pictures. You can, mm. you can spot them from a mile away. Um, after you looked at a few, you, you know them when you see them. Um, but they're, they're, he's more interested in what he's photographing for a change. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Usually he's, he's not that mm. actually interested in the figures or the, they're just... They're just tools to be manipulated and moved around in the great vista um, in a sort of endless search for a, for a perfection, really, a mm. photographic perfection, which was either through the lens or created in the darkroom. These, these images are more capturing slices of life. There's a beautiful one. One of the ones I love in there is, I guess it's, it must be early, just immediately post-war. It's Haifa. It's, it's people down at the beach. It's... It's a packed beach, looks like Bondi, you know. It's, um, and these would have, of course, when you think about it, would have been absolutely newly arrived European Jews yeah. who've come to Israel, yeah. before it's Israel, it's like two or three years before the state is declared, and they've just packed there to congregate together. And, and Hurley's taken this, for him, probably just a common place, I'll just go out and take a few pictures today, but mm. he's captured just yet again, he can't help himself. He's captured a remarkable moment. 
Mm. And it's done with fidelity. There's nothing faked mm. about that image. Mm. It's just, mm. just a straightforward afternoon shoot has gone out. And that's actually the interesting thing. If you look at those photographs of, of the land of Judea, of Palestine, they are not in the main photographs in which he's done a bit of fiddling around to make things look No, better. there's a few skies in there's there, a few isn't skies. there? Of course, there's a few you can't clouds. resist them. There's a few clouds. Yeah. But also <laughs> their, um, their, uh, they're optimistic. Mm. They're humanised, yeah. which he didn't often get into. And it's kind of he's captured what he felt, which is probably imagined as much as anything else, that there's something special about this place, these it's lands, the history respectful. of it. Mm. They're mm. very respectful. Mm. And, 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 you know, as we know, the, and they're just because, obviously, they're, they're before the great turmoils that will tear the Middle East apart, too, where these people are now at, at foes, no longer just populating and, the landscapes. And again, they're, they're a great ethnographic document. Mm. The, there's a wonderful photograph in there of uh, the Marsh Arabs. Mm. Yes. Uh, Hussein, that, Saddam Hussein wiped Sada out. Yeah. Saddam Hussein. Whose who's village, who's villages Hurley off. found idyllically yes. beautiful. Last yes. question for both of you. Hurley lived until 1962. In the 1950s, he was still mm. climbing around the Blue Mountains where he was quite happy to cut down trees if they impeded, and, impeded the viewpoint. And putting Middle East skies <laughs> in, into the, <laughs> <That's> right. into <laughs> the drop, background. Drop-in skies the from drop Palestine if they yeah. dramatise things. Um, now, he did well financially. Uh, you know, you, we've probably hinted that, that as a husband and father, he perhaps, in the modern view, may have left something to be desired. Um, Let's talk about his legacy as a photographer against Simon the likes of, say, Max Dupane and David Moore. But for both of you, how does the old showman stack up in 2019? Simon, what do you think? Well, I think there's, there's two ways of approaching it when, when I look at biographies, when mm. I do film biographies anyway. Um, you can let the work speak for itself or you need to add the layer of the, the photographer, the artist as well. And I think you can't separate Frank Frank the man from Frank the photo. I mean, the images do stand on their own. I don't think he was the genius of a Dupin. I don't think he was the once in a lifetime. But, but in somehow, the significance of his work is greater because it was he put himself in the middle of history, and if the history didn't live up to his expectations, well, he made it live up to his <laughs> expectations. And and that and that means he is a legacy. I think. As the library will know, whoever has a collection of Hurley from the Royal Geographic Society to down the road at the NFSA, is you absolutely know that Frank was 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 writing for tonight. <laughs> he he knew we would be talking about him for years, decades to come. He certainly hoped we, he would be, mm. um, and he kind of he set the traps for all of us as biographers to fall into, you know. I kind of love hate of Frank <laughs> because you cannot resist what he did and how he did it and he left so many questions and so many arguments and such a great body of work. Mm. It, it is a great body of work. Is he one of the great photographers? I don't know. I'll just say one thing as a documentary filmmaker. God, the guy made the very first documentary film. Mm. He made the first one before anyone had done it. No one knew what to do. From 72 standing, minutes from a standing from a standing start. start with a camera that he had for a week, down in more Antarctica. That, the, 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 um, Even before they got to Antarctica, he was up up yeah. in the mast. Okay, he's a young, agile, fit fellow, but making it up as he went, and he got a 72-minute film. Yeah. I, I, Home of know, the blizzard. 
I just can't imagine how you would so do So I that. can't help but admire him mm. for that alone. Alistair, last word to you. What, what's the shape of the legacy? I think I totally agree with what Simon says. He's, he's, but he's still this enigma. Mm. I lived with him for three years. He tormented me he's so for unable. three years. Yeah. And yet I... I, I had this, you know, I'll use the cliche, this love-hate relationship with, I could never quite, and okay, you, you're never quite going to understand your, your, your subject, and particularly when, well, for instance, Frank's personal life was just... I don't think Mrs Hurley had much of a grasp of either, perhaps. And it sounds <laughs> a, 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 a bit sad, and his daughters, Adelie and, and Tony, who were so generous with me, I just... I'll ever, always be grateful uh, to them and acknowledge them. They, they were just they were just wonderful. But they used to say, "We never knew our father." Well, he was always away, and and uh, even uh, sadly, um, Frank's um, granddaughter Julie Burns was going to be here tonight, but is unwell. And 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 Julie uh, very touchingly wrote to me after the book was published, and she said. I learned so much about my grandfather that I never knew. And, and, you know, that to me made the whole thing sort of worthwhile that I could, I, I, I could place this person in the right context historically. You know, there'd been previous biographies of, of Hurley and I don't know how much time we, we have, but this goes back to the whole, and this is personally for me, but I'd love to tell this little story. The biography of Hurley was the first biography I'd written. I'd written two or three books before that, but I came to it with some trepidation um, and a sense of, you know, I've got to do this properly. And there was an exhibition of his work at the State Library in Sydney, and I knew the curator of this exhibition quite well, Stephen Martin, and he said, well, come along and, and, and the Hurley twins will be there. I'll introduce you to them. And so... Um, Julie, I met uh, Tony and Adelie, and these are two formidable women in their 80s by that stage, and, and uh, I was well, very respectful and I'm very pleased to meet you and so on and so forth. Look, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to researching your father's life and, and, and so on, and I, I'd be honoured if I could come and meet you and, and interview you. And Adelie, who was the most forthright of the of the pair, she said to me, oh, another biography. <laughs> 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 and I was a bit taken aback, but um, they, they were wonderful. They lived up at Coffs Harbour um, together. They'd come together as twins, in a caravan park. In a caravan park. <laughs> Very happily. Um, in, in their later, later years, and they went travelling together and so on. And, um, but uh, once I took them to lunch at the local yacht club, and uh, they they were uh, they were sort of my friends from then on, and it was a, it was a fantastic relationship. I know I'm getting off the off subject a bit, but you know they, as I was saying, he's he's still an an, an enigma, as Simon said. He's as a photographer, was he a brilliant photographer? I don't know. Um, he certainly, when he was good, and when the composites worked, they added this extra energy and artistic um, presence to them. Um, but it, it, it's more, he's the sum of all these parts, mm. the adventure, the photography, the technical skill, 
the way he brought that all together and it, it was a life of great vibrancy and uh, an incredible achievement. Please thank very much Simon Nash and Alastair McGregor. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, um, Alastair, Simon and Genevieve. Um, I'm left with a whole lot of new images in my mind. One of the young man clutching the new film camera high up in the rigging in the Southern Ocean, not an image I had in my mind before. Um, the other, of course, is thinking, I have to say, if anybody wants any images of clouds to kind of <laughs> pop into your own, it sounds... We've got quite a lot that you We've could use, a great or collection, a, great <laughs> a great collection of clouds and, uh, and of Mediter Mediterranean skies. But um, I still feel, as you both sort of suggested, that yes, in a sense, you can put together all of these composite images of, of Hurley as well, but there's still something kind of um, hiding in there. You know, perhaps yeah. it's the little boat that's gotten scratched out of the glass negative that um, maybe you're still searching for. Now, after you finish your dessert, I do encourage you to take another look at our Hurley exhibition, and I think you will find yourself looking at these images in a new light. Um, the curator of the exhibition, Rosalind Clark, is with us tonight, and I did want to thank Ros for being here tonight because it was actually really her last curating gig with us before those scoundrels over at the NMA poached her, a bit like Hurley. Um, but actually, we share our collections with our friends at the collecting institutions and we share our excellent staff too. So Ros is at the museum now, but has come back tonight and will be very happy to answer any questions that you have about the items on display and about perhaps some of her own decisions in selecting them. Alastair and Simon are also happy to answer your questions and I'm quite sure that Alastair will happily sign copies of his book in the bookshop right over there. Now I hope you've all enjoyed your evening um, in company with this lovely conversation from our speakers and I hope meeting new and old friends around your tables. Um, the evening isn't over yet so please take your time having dessert, view the exhibition again and enjoy a bit more conversation. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.